Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, Episode 99 for the week ending, April 20, 2018, The Banks Are Still Behaving Badly Episode. Now, a word about our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, Inc. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally across all industries. With their knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on managers ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's ethics and compliance programs, visit Affiliated Monitors' website at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Today, Jay and I are back with the week's top ethics and compliance stories. Obviously, the Wells Fargo $1 billion fine is going to be significant, and we'll discuss that. We have uh, some comments by Michael Hell, the general counsel and executive vice president of the legal group at the New York Fed about the three lines of defense. We have a new assistant DAG, uh, Matthew Milner, excuse me, Minor, who has said that uh, in a private practice, he wants to cut back on the AIDS memo. Will he do so while he's uh, on the uh, DOJ team? Uh, We have a sentencing, or proposed sentencing, of an FCPA violator that Dick Casson reports on. Uh, ZTE reminds us that if you're under a DPA and you lie to the DOJ, you're in big trouble. We have another guilty plea in the ongoing Petavesa corruption case. And Rick Messick asks, will DPAs work outside the United States? We explore that topic. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of This Week in FCPA with my colleague Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors. This week, we're on episode 99 for the week ending April 20th, 2018, the Banks Are Still Behaving Badly edition. We had some, uh, I thought, wide variety of compliance and ethics stories this week. So, Jay, why don't we just uh, hop right into it? And our lead uh, topic today is, uh, amazingly enough, Wells Fargo. So what is Wells Fargo up to today in the breaking news category? Well, in the breaking news, uh, they've just been levied with a penalty of $1 billion with a B dollars. And it's being imposed by both the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the Office of the Controller of Currency. What's interesting about this is this is coming from the same uh, regulatory body that President Trump has been asking to uh, dismantle several banking rules and have a regulatory rollback because in the president's mind, uh, the banks are not lending enough money out there. And uh, I'm not sure if the the facts really um, uh, support that. Because uh, there's a number here, Tom. I don't know where, <clears throat> where it is, but there has uh, been a lot of uh, money that's been out there that the banks have made available to loans right now. In terms of Wells Fargo's trouble, um, 
we go back to September 2016 when they paid a fine of $185 million, and that was for um, opening up false and new credit cards uh, in customers' names without them knowing. And then furthermore, uh, the fines kept on coming. And also in 2006, the Justice Department levied almost $1.5 billion in fines and penalties against the bank for offenses ranging from uh, punishing white uh, whistleblowers unlawfully to repossessing the cards of our military heroes. So uh, in Trumpian fashion, uh, the president tweeted yesterday, fines and penalties against Wells Fargo Bank for their bad acts against their customers and others will not be dropped, as has incorrectly been reported, but will be pursued and, if anything, substantially increased. I will cut regs, but make penalties severe when caught cheating, exclamation point. So uh, not a good place to be this Friday morning at Wells Fargo. What are your thoughts on this, Dom? So uh, they just can't seem to get it right, Jay. Um, here we are a couple of years after the uh, original scandal. They have subsequently had uh, a fairly, a very severe sanction of um, put uh, on them by the uh, Fed regarding uh, their growth uh, because they were unwilling or unable to change not only their tone at the top, but the uh, requirements for um, risk management. So they um, really, uh, it's just, it's hard to understand the number of uh, continuing FUBARs they've had, although it maybe just defaults back to what Warren Buffett says, if there's one cockroach in the kitchen, or there's never one cockroach in the kitchen. And because of the structures they had in place, incentive programs they had in place, the architecture of the organization with its siloed nature, really nobody had visibility across all business lines. Um, they uh, just ran rampant in these fraudulent activities. So, um uh, you know, maybe the bank will uh, turn it around. Um, the bank itself, I found it most interesting that uh, certainly uh, most people are focusing on the number one billion, and rightly so as a fine and penalty. But the financial cost of Wells Fargo has been uh, e significantly more catastrophic. Uh, they've uh, lost a, a, a large percent or some percentage of their market cap. Uh, during the same time frame, uh, when uh, J.P. Morgan, for instance, uh, had a multiplier of I think uh, uh, ten or ten or so, uh, um, Wells Fargo is down in the single digits. Uh, their uh, costs for the defenses of these various fraudulent activities is, uh, I think, estimated at four point five billion, and that has uh, driven down their profits even more. So the cost to the bank for its failure to, to really do business ethically and in compliance with its own internal controls is, is really catastrophic. And it really drives home the point that um, the cost is not the fine and penalty. The cost is your uh, pre-settlement investigation cost, your post-settlement remediation cost, and for Wells Fargo, the loss of profits. So we can uh, hope that this will be one of the last uh, major fines and penalties against the bank. Let us hope that there are not additional fines and penalties uh, levied 
but it's certainly something that um, I think everyone's going to pay attention to on the political side of the House. Um, it's going to be interesting to see now whether the administration will point to this particular fine and say, see, we're serious about finding people and gut the rest of the organization, CFPB, or um, they will use this to, to look at other wrongdoers. So I'm uh, going to be interesting to see the political fallout, but from the compliance perspective, lots of lessons learned. Um, once you start looking, you're liable to find lots of different things. Uh, the, the board uh, certainly has come under significant criticism, and rightly so. Uh, we can only hope that Wells Fargo will start to pay attention to compliance at the board level and ethics as well. And uh, my, my suggestion, as I've said several times, is to put a compliance professional on the board. Uh, but uh, we'll just have to see whether Wells Fargo can, can pull itself out of this. So next up, we have a keynote address by uh, Michael Held that was given recently at the, I'm not familiar with this one, Tom, the 1LOD Summit. And uh, Mr. Held uh, works at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. Right. So, uh, Jay, I pulled this one because I thought it was interesting. The three lines of defense are generally recognized to be the frontline uh, troops, your operational management. Uh, line two is uh, your compliance and legal functions. And then line three is your internal audit function. And what Michael Held has asked us to think about is uh, certainly within the context of those three lines, uh, don't make them silos. So uh, have visibility across all three lines. And uh, really work to operationalize all three lines. Uh, essentially, it's don't miss the forest for the trees, but he talks about it in lots of different ways, such as diversity, such as your architecture. And that was, uh, I think, something that many uh, companies had really not considered until Wells Fargo with their very siloed business unit nature. Obviously, incentives is important to consider, but uh uh, Mr. Held points out that it's not simply about financial incentives, and he pointed directly to the LIBOR scandal, where um, uh, he found incentives uh, other than financial drove the uh, some of the scandals. Then he has a section on moral reasoning. This is what Dov Seidman, I think, from LRN would call moral courage um, to really step up and do uh, the right thing. And um, I thought it was a, a really interesting article. It's as you may guess, from someone who works at the uh, New York Fed, aimed at bankers, but it has a lot of applicability to the general uh, compliance practitioner and how you think through your role and the roles of uh, all others uh, uh, in your company for operationalizing compliance. So, Jay, next up, we have yet another new uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General who's overseeing the Criminal Division's Fraud Section. It's a fellow named... Um, Matthew Miner, and uh, he um, had said some things in private practice about uh, giving corporations uh, more of a pass and, uh, quote, clarifying, end quote, parts of the Yates memo, uh, which really just seemed to me to be uh, denuding uh, the Yates memo. But um, what was your take on this? Um, I think there part of it is um, a stick and part of it is a carrot. And the, the part that I, I like that he uh, brought up was he thought that there is 
one thing the department could do to really incentivize investments in this space is to make compliance programs and their effectiveness and adequacy of these programs super factors. So uh, one side of his mouth, he's arguing that the time to really uh, be investing in ethics and compliant is on the front end because you can really use this as a risk management tool and you can also uh, incentivize it as to how to keep the uh, the companies uh, on their toes and benchmarked with uh, the proper programs out there. But I'm uh, a little bit confused with his confusion with the with the Yates memo and exactly how that uh, you know plays with individual culpability. So the one interesting thing is that the recent remarks by uh, Rod Rosenstein has also said that he wants to clarify the ambiguities and the Yates memo. And then in March, he also said that he wants to reward companies that invest in strong compliance measures. So I think, you know, part of it is really good about looking at the preventative nature of, uh, you know, ethics and compliance programs that are robust and have teeth in them. But at the same time, I'm worried about watering things down with the uh, Yates memo. Uh, so let me leave aside the issue of just uh, giving corporations a pass. Um, I mean, that's a typical uh, Chamber of Commerce position. Uh, but this is not uh, unusual in the following, Jay. We see lawyers in private practice make arguments all the time. I would point you to Andrew Wiseman who uh, wrote a paper for the Chamber of Commerce setting forth a desire to have a compliance defense. And uh, that completely changed once he got um, uh, on the team with the DOJ, and he became one of the uh, strongest prosecutors of companies um, around uh, uh, in his role in overseeing the fraud section. Uh, and so I don't think you can uh, – uh, certainly uh, SEC Chairman Jay Clayton uh, directly criticized FCPA enforcement and private practice, and his tune has completely changed. These guys don't go in here to um, uh, not prosecute. Uh, companies. Uh, I, I just completely discount this. It's a lawyer speaking for his client uh, before he got behind the DOJ's team, and now he's on the team, and now he's going to prosecute. That's sort of point one. Point two is, if he's going to change things, he's got to change the U.S. Attorney's Manual. And uh, this is not the minor memo. This is not clarification of the Yates memo. Um, uh, this this would be a, a change in policy, which means it has to go all the way up uh, to be approved, uh, literally up to the uh, vetted up to the AG's level. So, um, it, you know, it was a, a speech hosted by the Federalist Society, uh, and he's speaking to an audience there that wants to hear that. And so I just I completely discount this um, super factors. Um, that changes a sentencing guidelines that requires congressional approval. And um, as you can tell, I don't really put any any stock in it. Okay, so next up, uh, we have something from uh, Richard Casson in the FCPA blog. Feds seek 40-month FCPA sentence for Florida Telecom's chief. What's that about? So this is a uh, continuing saga of um, uh, in Miami uh, where we have uh, um, people who paid bribes to get uh, telecom services or contracts rather for telecom companies in Aruba. And uh, we had a, a U.S. citizen uh, involved in this 
um, who uh, I think has uh, pled guilty to uh, paying or uh, part of a conspiracy to pay bribes. So uh, we've had um, uh, one uh, guilty plea previously, and uh, we've got a couple of folks coming up to uh, be sentenced. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, what the sentence is. This is someone who's pled guilty and apparently cooperated. A 40-month sentence is certainly nothing to scoff at. The other interesting thing about this, Jay, was this was not a, a self-disclosure, but this was really exposed uh, in uh, 2016 through the Panama Papers when mm-hmm. uh, it was revealed that the um, uh, product manager for the uh, uh, state enterprise uh, in Aruba um, turned out to own shell companies or offshore companies, and he was named in the Panama Papers. So it shows once again where uh, great journalism uh, in uh helping to uh, uh, put the light of day on offshore entities has led to uh, criminal convictions. So we're going to have to, uh, to see where this, uh, this may go. All right. Next up, we have another story from um, FCPA blog, and it's about the uh, Chinese telecom company ZTE, and they have replaced their chief compliance officer, after admitting to the U.S. government in March that it made false statements about meeting the requirements of their settlement agreement. Uh, and this general, uh, this uh, on Wednesday, uh, ZTE removed Cheng Gang, a senior vice president, from the role as chief compliance officer and chief legal officer, according to an internal human resources notice dated March 8th. And... Um, China is now a ZTE is China's biggest listed telecommunications equipment maker. And on Monday, they were uh, served with a seven year denial of export privileges by the U.S. Department of Commerce Commerce for failing to comply with the settlement terms in an earlier sanction agreement. And um, this bases back in uh, 2017, ZTE paid a one point one nine billion uh, fine to settle criminal charges for selling equipment to um, Iran and North Korea. And as part of the settlement, uh, they've promised to fire four senior executives and discipline 35 others. And in fact, uh, they did file fire the four or senior uh, uh, employees, but they continued to have those others still being employed by the company, and they were actually paid full bonuses and uh, failed to be issued any uh, reprimands. So uh, I guess this we file this one under that uh, you really shouldn't lie to the regulator because they're going to come back and bite you. Yeah. um, In my last corporate position, Jay, I was with a company that was under deferred prosecution for its FCPA sins, and uh, they pulled this. Um, They uh, were not honest with the regulators, then the DOJ, and um, the DOJ was not happy. And I tell the story that, um, and I was never sure why they were so unhonest with the DOJ, if it's the owners were also foreign outside the United States. And it was never clear to me if it was because they just didn't understand. There was some language gap, some cultural misunderstanding. But I liken it to the following. Uh, as a teenage boy, I engaged in certain behaviors that um, I would ask for forgiveness after I'd engaged in said behaviors. 
as the father of a teenage girl, my views evolved somewhat where I wanted to know beforehand what the behavior was um, rather than after it occurred. So uh, perhaps they've had an evolutionary awakening as well at ZTE. The um, the sanction, though, is just stunning, and um, that's a, a seven-year denial of export. Uh, so that basically cuts them off from the American market, and that is uh, catastrophic. So um, much more than a $1.19 billion fine. So um, they've now got to manufacture everything in the United States. So who knows where this uh, will take the company but it is, and, and the other point I would raise in the general uh, political climate of uh, Trump's trade wars, uh, is China going to now um, retaliate in some way? Uh, I, I, I leave that as an unanswered or open question. Nevertheless, this is catastrophic for ZTE, and uh, it really drives on the point you started with, which is the regulators do not like to be lied to. And if you're a non-U.S. company out there thinking, well, I'll just say I'm sorry and didn't understand that uh, that's not going to cut it going forward. So, Tom, you have often said that Houston is the center of the FCPA world. Why don't you tell us uh, what Henry Cutter wrote about our good friends at Petavesa? So, um, Henry Cutter uh, at the Risk and Compliance Journal at the Wall Street Journal yesterday re- reported that a, another guilty plea uh, has come down in the massive uh, Petavesa uh, ongoing corruption scandal. This one was uh, Cesar Risson, and Cesar's brother, Roberto, had previously pled guilty. Uh, but Cesar was a part of the Petavesa purchasing team uh, called the management team, and they literally solicited vendors uh, I wouldn't say extorted, but they certainly solicited vendors for bribes and kickbacks in exchange for providing uh, those vendors assistance with their Petavesa business. The uh, assistance was to get contracts and to get information about uh, response to RFPs and to jump ahead of others in the payment line. Uh, this was not a ten or twenty thousand uh, dollar sort of help. This was. Uh, help that engendered up to $7 million to Mr. Cesar Rinson. Uh, and that's the amount he laundered into Switzerland and he agreed to forfeit. So, um, you know, Petavesa is clearly one of the most corrupt con- companies around. Um, and we've had some interesting in, uh, lawsuits filed recently, one here in Houston by a company called Harvest Natural Resources, who um, claimed that because they refused to pay a bribe to Petavesa, Petavesa blocked the sale of a business unit, which caused the company to go out of business. Uh, even more interesting is a lawsuit by an entity called, quote, Petavesa U.S. Litigation Trust, end quote, that is uh, an arm somehow of Petavesa itself, and it claims that uh, the Petavesa individuals oil trading companies and banks uh, engaged in a scheme to uh, defraud Petavesa. So uh, in the, certainly in the world of uh, Alan Dershowitz Hudspa, that's probably right up there with one of the top ones. Nevertheless, uh, a lot going on. And I even read this morning that uh, Mike Pence, who's on a, or just concluded a tour in Latin America, has worked with a group of uh, other countries in Latin America to monitor Petavesa corruption. It's so endemic. And uh, Petavesa is the last 
sort of gasp of a of a real uh, international monetary business, money business for the Venezuelan government. So it's going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out. Um, and the question, one of the questions I raised is this uh, Petavesa Trust, one, can they bring the lawsuit? But two, uh, d- uh, with the sanctions that have been levied on Venezuela, uh, what's going to be the effect on that? Uh, all I can say is uh, if you your company has done business with Petavesa, you need to bring in affiliated monitors to shake the trees and see if something's going wrong or has gone wrong or there are any payments. Uh, and if you work for Citgo, I'd start, uh, I'd sure be circulating my resume now. So, Tom, um, you also sent me the uh, official release from DOJ. Do you know any of those folks in Houston who are in, involved with prosecuting this one? No, uh, I don't know any of the, uh, the prosecutors personally. Got it. So our uh, cleanup thing that we want to take a look at comes to us from the uh, Global Anti-Corruption blog, and it's a, it's, um, a post from Rick Messick. And it's got a great title, What Chinese Cuisine and Deferred Prosecutions Have in Common. And uh, as we've been tracking for uh, since the beginning of this year and thinking even started at the end of 2017, that uh, DPAs, Deferred Prosecution Agreements, are uh, starting to take a nice tour around the world. And in addition to the United Kingdom, France, Argentina, most recently Singapore, also Australia and Canada are all looking on bringing on the mechanism of deferred uh, prosecution agreements as a way to resolve uh, anti-corruption or actually a way to resolve corruption matters. And the question that Rick Messick posits is um, how well is the DPA going to travel around the world? And here in the United States, uh, it's a way uh, to resolve an action uh, to keep a company in business and keep a company solvent. And uh, the reason most companies agree to a a DPA is that they do not want to uh, face a long, lengthy trial with a possibility of losing that trial. And the, the question that Rick asks is, will other countries' DPAs have enough teeth in them or will companies be emboldened to uh, go to court and see if they can beat these things? So it's a, it's a very short blog, but it's uh, very insightful. And I think it's something we need to uh, take a look at in the coming months. Your thoughts on it? So, Jay, I guess I thought that uh, uh, the point Rick raised was not simply about going to trial and being successful, but it was even more basic point about the willingness to uh, prosecute. And certainly in the United States, it's viewed as the interest of the United States to uh, fight bribery and corruption of U.S. and other companies that violate the FCPA. Uh, His point, I think, was that um, will other governments feel that same sort of need? Uh, Singapore, you know, perhaps has one view, but if you look at Malaysia, I mean, that government is is alleged to be as corrupt as there there that can be. So, will a government actually have a real uh, threat of um, 
prosecution? Is that threat just a political threat that uh, we'll bring out from time to time and use against a uh, company? I mean, the Chinese have only prosecuted one Western company, although they have aggressively prosecuted Chinese individuals who've engaged in bribery and corruption. The only Chinese uh, prosecution against a Western company was GlaxoSmithKline. So uh, I guess the overall question that I thought Rick correctly raised is unless you have the willingness um, to prosecute, and I think he called them uh, psychological and structural factors, uh, will companies be incentivized to essentially self-disclose or self-report? And uh, the answer to that is uh, we don't know at this point. Um, can Can you have the incentive of a DPA without a stick behind it? And if you don't have a stick, is anybody going to uh, come in and it, admit something that they have done uh, when there's not a lot of uh, incentive for them to do so? We posted episode 27 of Everything Compliance, which uh, went up yesterday. And uh, th- this one was a really a lot of fun, a lot more interplay. Uh, we were privileged to have Jonathan Armstrong in Houston. And so he and I were together uh, when, and we had uh, on the phone yourself, Matt, and uh, Mike Volkoff. We had a, a much more interactive. Uh, we took a look at two different topics, uh, the Zuckerberg Facebook testimony uh, overlaid, of course, with Jonathan's EU GDPR uh, Cambridge Analytica thoughts together with uh, the Michael Cohen subpoena. subpoena. So uh, uh, Mike Volkoff did a great job of laying out the, the legal uh, underpinnings of how a attorney can have a search warrant executed on uh, his property. So that's up. Uh, I wanted to announce a upcoming webinar. I'm uh, participating with Opus Global and Hyperos on the convergence of uh, anti-corruption compliance and GDPR compliance, which will be next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern time. The event is at no charge, and uh, we're going to link to the uh, registration and uh, additional information uh, in our show notes. And of course, uh, my book is still available for pre-sale. We're still looking at a uh, uh, publication in early May, so I hope you'll check that out. It will certainly be, I think, one of the top single volumes uh, on uh, compliance, compliance practitioners, and compliance programs around. And then, so that Wednesday, April 25th, that is exactly one month before GDPR goes live, correct? Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. And um, uh, I don't know about you, Jay, uh, but I am literally inundated every day with three to five emails. Uh, All are essentially, are you GDPR ready? And advertising a white paper, a webinar, a, a something uh, that you can do. So uh, we are starting to get overwhelmed uh, with GDPR information. As you know, Jonathan Armstrong and I have had a series this entire year on uh, countdown to GDPR. Uh, but um, if you haven't started to get ready, you really need to begin because uh, European regulators are going to be looking at American companies uh, for data privacy violations. And the other point uh, that Facebook has really driven home because it's not clear how much of Facebook will comply with GDPR, but if you have a data breach and you release and you're required to notify regulators in 72 hours in the United Kingdom or the EU, uh, that information is going to get out. So you never have a data breach limited to one geographic area. So if there's a data breach of a uh, large technology company in Europe, it's probably a data breach in the United States. And so uh, these companies that think they're going to hide behind U.S. law or lack of U.S. law, 
I think are sorely mistaken, and it's going to be just an administrative uh, nightmare for them. Do you think that they're they're going to jump right in on this, or is there going to be, um, you know, a kind of like slow rollout before the the first kind of uh, you know situations come up? So Jonathan Armstrong told us that Cambridge Analytica has been under EU investigation uh, for at least a year, um, maybe uh, longer, back to 2016. So uh, there are some ongoing investigations, and if Facebook does not comply with GDPR, uh, I think regulators in the in the EU are just literally uh, Pavlovian uh, canine in their desire to go after a U.S. company, and uh, Facebook um, would probably be one of the first targets. So uh, I think that they have had investigations under the old law. Uh, the breaches that may or may not have occurred under the old law will become much more uh, expensive after the go live date. So I, I really think we're going to have a, a fairly quick uh, enforcement regime, but it's based upon things that certainly happened before the, uh, the law changed. Great. Thank you for that uh, feedback. So in the, um, the world of affiliated monitors, um, my colleague uh, Eric Feldman was in Singapore during the week, and he did uh, a couple presentations to, uh, let me see, to the PSIA, which is the Public Sector Internal Audit Conference. And uh, Eric spoke about how audits become investigations. And then we also had a reception in London with our uh, joint venture partners, RS Legal Strategy. Uh, they introduced uh, a new attorney who's joining them, uh, David Kirk, who's coming over from McGuire Woods. And from the affiliated monitor side, uh, Vin DeCiani and Don Stern were there, were, were representing us. So it looks like they had a great event in London. And um, I guess we're getting ready for a milestone if the uh, – title is correct. We are episode 99. So next week will be our 100th episode. So almost two years on the radio. And uh, Millie and Michaela are working very hard on some ethics and compliance questions that they want to propose to us at the beginning of next week's session. So I'm looking forward to that. So you want to take us home, Jay? Sure. On behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, uh, we'd like to thank you for joining us for uh, episode 99, the Banks Still Behaving Badly edition. Uh, This is for the week ending April 20th, 2018. Uh, We thank you for joining us for all things ethics, compliance, and FCPA. And we wish you a great weekend. Thanks so much. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. If you have any questions, you can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. You can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. If you have listened to this podcast on iTunes, I would greatly appreciate it if you would rate our podcast as it would help in our rankings and help get the word out about the only weekly wrap-up in compliance and ethics on the podcast scene. 
Stay tuned next week where we have episode 100 with special guest appearances from Millie and Michaela. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you have enjoyed this episode. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.